Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. Well, praise the Lord. Man, what a great time we're having. I, I don't know about you, but I love these kind of sessions. I love the ability to dive deep into the Word of the Lord. Let me just echo uh, what pastors already said for all the people who uh, make these events happen. They get here, they clean up, uh, they set up, they cook, uh, they put things together way before we get here and get to enjoy. Uh, so could you give them one more hand? All these wonderful people in the body of Christ serving us, making this a great event. Uh, and let me just uh, say very quickly to the Herbs, thank you for always letting me crash in your home. And it was wonderful. I don't know how Sister Herbs made those gluten-free, lactose-free muffins taste that way, but she's going to heaven pretty sure just for that. <laughs> I, I, want, I want to take off and land fast. I do want to get to your questions, but I want to build a little bit and talk about uh, a current issue that's in our movement and uh, like I said last night, I, I gave you kind of the passion part of it from my heart, uh, but I want to give you the details of it today to show you the different views uh, of, of what people say about the Bible. What we're going to talk about is sources of revelation. When we say we have the Word of God, what do we mean? So we're going to spend a little bit of time on that today, and uh, uh, I often play for, pray for uh, clarity and brevity. Hardly do I get them ever together. So I'm praying for that today, Brother Brown, so I can get both of those together and we can uh, move on. But I do want to deal with kind of four little aspects, should we have enough time. Uh, if not, we may drop one of these off, if you'll forgive me for that, and we'll get to your questions. But I want to talk about, when we, we say sources of revelation, we're dealing with things like inspiration, and we're going to define that. We're going to look at the way that the Bible defines a biblical inspiration. When the Bible says uh, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, what does that mean? We're going to look at views of that because that's being confused right now in our culture. There are people that are uh, trying to shift uh, for academic respectability or for acceptance in the wider culture or for the praise of people, like I said last night, with paper. Uh, Brother Bublitz, they're trying to make an accommodation so that they can have the respect of people in our day or the respect of our culture instead of saying, what does the Bible say about itself? And so this is an in-house discussion. So uh, we're going to decide what we as apostolics, what we as biblical believers, what we who model ourselves after the apostles and after what Jesus would say, what, what they say about the Bible is what we have to say. How many would agree with that? Whatever Jesus says about the scripture, we have to say about the scripture if we're going to be faithful uh, Christians, faithful servants of the Lord, faithful apostolics. So uh, that's what we mean. We're going to look at the doctrine of inerrancy. And, and we're going to talk about uh, a little term, hermeneutics, and uh, we'll define what these terms are and talk about uh, preservation. So um, uh, well, let's, let's talk first of all about what's the difference between general revelation and special revelation. Well, general revelation is what, what God gave us in creation and what he gave us in conscience. So that when you look at the scripture, Paul says... Uh, that in, in Romans chapter 1, that uh, the Gentiles who don't even have the law, they don't have the special revelation of the Old Testament, there's enough in creation and in their conscience to let them know that there is a creator and that they have a moral nature and are guilty. And that's enough to condemn every individual in the world uh, and they're lost. Why? Because when you realize there's a creator and you realize that you have a conscience and you know good from evil, that should, that should push you, Paul says, to seek for more revelation. So it doesn't matter if somebody rejects God at step one or later on down the line by saying, well, I really like the idea of Jesus, but I don't want to obey that. It uh, doesn't matter if it's step one or step 51 or step 101. Whenever you reject revelation and turn your back on God, you are lost. But Paul says, just by rejecting creation and conscience, that's enough for everybody in the world to be condemned. Why? Because even the psalmist says that creation testifies to the glory of God. So everybody's guilty 
because they know there's a creator, even if they deny it. I'll resist the urge to do this too much today, but I like talking about it this way, Brother Brom. It's like the atheists who write books like God is Not Good or, or The Death of God. It's like uh, one man said it this way. If you, if you don't believe in leprechauns, does anybody believe in leprechauns? Hopefully nobody, just Brother Bubba, that's how you got it. <laughs> All right, so just less. All right, so uh, we got to take it back to Bible college. All right, so Brother Bubbles, if you don't believe in leprechauns, you don't spend your whole life writing books like why leprechauns are not good or the death of leprechauns, which again is saying that if you're spending that much of your life to argue against something, it's because innately you know that there's something there that's drastically important. And to quote uh, Shakespeare, uh, he says, methinks the lady does protest too much. And in that vehement denial, in that amount of life they spend arguing against God, they're showing Brother Herbst that they actually do believe there's a God. Because if you don't believe in leprechauns, you just go watch a football game or something. It's like, if you don't believe in God, just kind of go on with your life. And again, they spend much of their life because their conscience is afflicted. And it will not go away because innate on the inside, they really do know that there's a God. Now, what we have to say, though, is general revelation, Paul shows, is not enough. You need something more, what we would call special revelation or specific revelation. That means the Bible. General revelation, your conscience, uh, what you know innately uh, from creation should lead you to say, is there a book that ha uh, discloses what that creator wants me to do? And that, of course, is what the Bible is. It is special revelation from God on that. Now, we know that, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time there. So let me, let me tell you then what the Bible says itself. Jesus had a high view of Scripture. And that means many of the views being espoused by people today that would call themselves Christian, uh, Jesus has a very different view of the word of God than them. And so we cannot allow uh, uh, views of the scripture that Jesus himself would not embrace. How many of you say, Jesus is my Lord? Then you ready? You have to believe, uh, or to say it more pointedly, an apostolic must say what Jesus says about scripture. If you're going to be a good apostolic, you have to say what Jesus said. Now, we don't have time to deal with the first part of this phrase. He's dealing with the old Hebrew word Elohim, and I wish we had time to talk about that being the representatives of God and how that the Moses, he said, I've made you Elohim to Pharaoh, and that means he became the voice of God to Pharaoh. So we don't have time to deal with that in, in the context, but maybe uh, we'll deal with that later if you want to. Uh, but look at what Jesus says in the last part of verse 35 of John chapter 10. He says, the scripture cannot be broken. How many of you are glad you can base your life on a true word from God that cannot be broken? Right, so uh, let, let me see if I can uh, I'll give you another a little uh, taste of what Jesus said. He says, think not that I am come to destroy the law. Or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I come to fill uh, every aspect of the law to its fullest expression. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. God says, I am watching over my word. I have given you something so specific that you ready? It will not break until the end of time when everything is fulfilled. That means you hold in your hands the map road into eternity. Now, that is a powerful uh, high view of Scripture expressed in the voice of our Lord. Uh, Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least, these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do, everybody say do, and teach him, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus uh, had a high uh, view of scripture. Now let me see if I can give you one more. The Apostle Paul. Now, uh, you know, old timers used to sing this song. There's a highway to heaven. How many know that song? None can walk up there. All these young people in the front row go, what in the world is Brother Kevin saying? But the pure at heart. Now, every once in a while, when you find yourself in a position of defending your belief, you're going to look around. It's going to look really lonely today because most of the evangelical world, Brother Brown, most of the uh, even what we would call conservative Christian world has distanced itself from these views of Scripture. So it's going to look really lonely at times when you have to defend a view of the Bible that no one else is wanting to defend. But you know what? When I look around and I see Jesus walking with me, I don't care who else is on the road with me, Brother Herb. 
trips. As long as Jesus, I'm on a highway to heaven. Why? Because Jesus is walking with me. But not only Jesus, the apostle Paul. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. What I want you to think about today is what that means. You ready? That you can have profitable doctrine. You have the very ideas of God about all of life, and you don't have to be smart enough to come. Listen, you're not smart enough to come up with it on your own. I don't have to guess about how to run my marriage. I don't have to guess about how to be a father or a husband. The Lord has made me a better man and a husband and a father than I could ever be on my own. Why? Because I'm not smart enough to direct my own life. He, it's not in a man that walketh to direct his steps, the Old Testament says. I have a revelation from God. And how many of you are glad you got a revelation from God outside of the fall that can give you direction for a higher level of living? And so it's profitable for reproof. How many of you have ever been corrected before? Thank God. I don't, we talk about Brother Brom like how many kids got saved at camp. And you're like, I don't know how many times I got saved at camp. Uh, uh, Sister Lear, I don't know how many bad decisions I've been saved from where I've been walking in places where I shouldn't be going, maybe cycling around with the wrong friends or getting involved. I don't know how many times I've been saved by reproof and correction because God got me back on track. So the Lord gives us this beautiful thing for instruction and righteousness, that right life, that ability to, now I'm going to try, I'm trying to be good today, but that, that ability to be the type of man that God could, Brother Bubbles, you got a, a young man here somewhere, John David, wherever he's at, where you at me, John, where are you? Yes, there you are. So yeah, what is it? Yes, there he is right there. Okay, so, so John, Brother Bubbles, you don't have to worry about how to raise your son, right? Because God can help you direct him in righteousness so much that he will protect the reputation of every young lady that he's with because when he's alone with them, he's not gonna be trying to do unrighteous things. Why? Because he's been instructed in righteousness and every light that young boy touches can bless anything he's involved in. That's why all these young ladies are saying, I'm gonna look for a godly man. Why? I'm not looking for a broken man who's gonna to try to manipulate me and abuse me and use me and cast me aside. I'm looking for something righteous. That's the beauty. Now listen, if we don't have this as an inerrant, inspired, preserved word, we don't have that kind of direction. Right, and we forsake those things when we uh, uh, deal with those. Okay, so that men, uh, that the man of God may be what? Perfect. How many of you want to be perfect? Brother Kilman, nobody's perfect. Don't say that. You know, the Bible calls all sorts of people perfect. Call Job perfect. I know what we mean by that. Here's what perfection is. I don't have anything left to repent of. <laughs> okay, that's a good definition. Uh, Brother Prince used to say, it's in the struggling and the striving to be conformed to the image of Christ that I'm accounted perfect. And, am I everything that I want to be? No, but I'm striving. I'm in the race. I'm, I'm, I'm not who I was. I'm not the, man, the brokenness that was in my life before Christ is no longer. I'm being conformed, yes, to his image. But how many of you know I'm not who I was? And you can be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That means all of your life can glorify God. Now, now let me see if I can uh, stop from preaching today and stay on track. Help me, Jesus. So, so what does that mean? The, the phrase that Paul uses is pasagrafe theonustas. Pasa, all. Everybody say all. all. Grafe, scripture. Theonustas is God breathed. Now, now what does that mean? It means that that, that, that that inspiration of Scripture means that what they wrote was literally from the Lord. Okay, so that's where they were making fun of me, as I said last night in my, uh, uh, my wonderful uh, liberal seminary, that I believe in divine penmanship. Okay, call me whatever name you want to call me, but I'm, I'm happy to side with Jesus and Paul and not you. So you got to go ahead and have a whole lot of confidence to just look at people and say, I love you. I, I appreciate the fact that you have all sorts of credentials. And I, I know Brother Herb's talked about being at the uh, seminary he's at, and God bless them. But, you know, when you look at them and they're wrong, you ready? Because they got something in their textbook that's different than the Word of God and what Jesus and the apostles said. We're apostolic, Brother Herb's. We're just going to obey Jesus and the apostles. Because we, uh, we believe uh, that the Bible is the inspired 
a word of God. Now, I'm, I'm going to try to hurry. Help me, Lord. All right, let me give you another one. Look at what Jesus says. But he answered, this is Jesus, and said, It is written. Now, I know I've got a lot of verses up here today. But if you just write down this reference to Matthew 4, 4. Jesus says, it is written, not it was written. Jesus is saying that in his day, Sister Lear, he has the very words of God. (laughs) You ready? When you start quoting the Bible, you need to go ahead and say, it is written. Why? Because if Jesus believed he had the inerrant, inspired, preserved word in his day, you have to believe that you have the inerrant, inspired, preserved word in your day if you're going to say what Jesus says about Scripture. Right? And, and we'll talk about what that means. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. That's not some words. That's not the gist of the word. You need every inspired word of God. Now, there are people that say, well, Brother Kilman, we don't have every word. There are some, I have one wonderful friend of mine that I'm working with, trying to influence. He said, well, Brother Kilman, some readings are lost to us. Which part of the Bible is lost to us? How many of you say, I'm just going to believe Jesus? Uh, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth uh, of God, that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So Jesus is pinning his authority in uh, in his spiritual battle with Satan. He's pinning his authority on the slightest marking of every word in the Hebrew text. He's saying, I can use this as the sword of the spirit against the enemy because it's preserved to me. All right, so let's see if we can uh, dive in a little further. So over 3,800 times in the Old Testament, Scripture is called the Word of God or the words of God. And I know you're going, well, duh, Brother Kilman. I know, but there are people that are going to try to talk you out of that. And you just say, well, look, just in Psalm 119 alone, Psalm 119 is an acrostic. It's an alphabetical poem. Each verse is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that acrostic poem is a, a, a wonder, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's a defense of the Bible as the word of God. And 175 times in Psalm 119 alone, the Bible, the scripture is called the word of who? Not of, not of Paul, not of, not, you ready? Not of David, not of the psalmist, not of Moses. It's the word of God. Holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So don't talk to me about Luke's rhetorical strategy. Don't reduce your view of inspiration to them coming up with their own arguments. They were moved by the Spirit to write the very words of Scripture. Okay, and, 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 and yeah, I, that's a hallelujah. Okay, I, I love that kind of stuff, so forgive me for that. All right, so let me give you another one. Uh, Lord Christ and Paul says that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms or the writings is Scripture. Now, why is that important? Because that's a way of speaking, Brother Herbs, of the entire Old Testament. So when people start saying, do we have the Word of God? Did Jesus believe he had the Word of God? He said, yeah, the law. That's the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote. The prophets, both the former and the latter, which we call the historical books and the major minor prophets. And the Psalms, all of the writings. All of those are Scripture. Now, uh, that means that's all we need. That's why, all due respect to our Catholic friends, we don't have extra books. That's why our Bible is different than theirs. Why? Because Jesus never quoted, the apostles never quoted from the Pseudepigrapha. All of those, uh, how many of you know the Catholic, you got a Catholic friend? Anybody got a Catholic friend? They got extra books in their Bible. That's why it's not in this Bible. Why? Because Jesus and the apostles never used them. How many of you want to be apostolic? All that means is I want to be biblical. I want to do the word of God like Jesus and the apostles did. And that's why we don't have those other books. So in Luke 24, 44, And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. Jesus, of course, speaking to the apostles. That all these things must be fulfilled, which were written in who? The law of Moses. Now, for those of you who are a little more uh, advanced in terms of study, just go ahead and put a little note somewhere. Notice he didn't say the law of Moses and the redactors and the editors. (laughs) I just try to behave. Hallelujah. And in the prophets, in the Psalms concerning me. And, and, and that's the same thing that Paul says, For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labor is worthy of his hire. Now what's important about that text? He's quoting the Old Testament as scripture. 
And that's an endorsement uh, of the Bible as uh, the word of God. I'll give you just a few more and then we'll uh, hasten on to uh, the views. A God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times, uh, pa- time passed unto us by who? The prophets. And again, that's an endorsement of the word of God. The apostle Peter, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Now here's what you have to say. These are not man-made ideas. But, but the holy men of God spake as they were what? Moved by the Holy Ghost. That's what we have to say about the word of God or we have to admit that we're in conflict with the apostle Peter. And if you want his message in Acts 2.38 about salvation, you also have to take his statement about scripture. Okay, that it is in fact the inspired uh, word of God. Now, we, we don't have time to deal with this. Everybody look at that and say, that's just, I'm sure that's wonderful. Oh, yes, it's one, it really is wonderful. We're skipping that that day. Hallelujah. All right, so uh, now here's what they did. They were rabbinical experts. And you go look at Luke 1, 1 through 4, and you can see that, that, the, that, that Luke is writing. He's saying, I've, I've sought out all of these things, like Brother Herb said today. This is tied to history. If it can be historically proven false, you can falsify the faith. God, I, Paul said, if, if, uh, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, our faith is what? It's null, it's in vain, it's useless. Why? Because God obligated his revelation to history. And so uh, that's what Luke, of course, one's out, uh, writes out in uh, verses one through four. But more than that, look at what Jesus promised. Because this is not even them just being good disciples, rabbinical experts who were there to accurately transcribe what Jesus taught. John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in, that's why it's good to be baptized in Jesus' name. He will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and what? Bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I had said unto you. So they're not just trying to remember what Jesus taught. What Jesus said is when the Spirit comes, it's going to give you exactly everything. It's going to remind you of every single thing that I said. That is absolute supernatural recall promised by Christ. Now, skeptics and atheists, I know, Brother Bubbles, they they won't acknowledge that. But a good apostolic should acknowledge that. That's why you shouldn't be writing things like we only have the gist of speeches and they're trying to remember and they didn't have recording devices back then. No, no, no. They had something better than recording devices. They had the absolute supernatural recall of the Spirit promised by Christ just like in the Old Testament. Holy men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You don't have to wonder whether or not you have the words of Jesus or the apostles' sermons. You have exactly what God by His Spirit helped them recall. How many think Jesus can do a good job? How many think the Spirit can do a good job? Okay, then we're safe. We got a wonderful word from God. Okay, I'm I'm just going to have to hurry. Oh, look at that. Did you just skip past for me there, Rip? Glory to God. I don't know what happened there. All right, let's, uh, okay. Oh, yes, we need to do those. Mm. All right, so let me give you one little fun verse. Um, uh, It's in, uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Was that Second Peter? Did I skip Second Peter? I did. I don't know what's going on with my clicker. John, maybe you can help me back there and just advance, uh, advance one more time for me. All right, Second Peter chapter three, fifteen and sixteen. This is one of the most fascinating uh, scriptures to deal with inspiration. Look at what the apostle Peter says: an account that the long suffering our Lord of salvation. Of course, he's in the flow of a thought. He says, even as our beloved brother Paul. Now, notice he's talking about the apostle Paul. Also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Now, he's talking about the writings of Paul, as also in all his epistles. Now, I've got that highlighted for you on purpose. Speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood. How many of you have been reading through like Romans and Galatians and go, oh, I'm going to need a little help on this one? Okay, I'm the only one. I got it. Oh, I got a head nod. Thank you very much. All right, right, so you just got to chew on some things. Now, and and he says it's hard to be understood. Now, if you've ever read uh, the writings of 2 Peter, you're thinking, I think you're hard to be understood too sometimes, not Apostle Peter. All right, so uh, he says, speaking in them, these things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist, as they do also what? 
the other scriptures. Now, what's important to point out there? You ready? That the apostle Peter sees Paul's writings as scripture. So this notion that the Catholic Church determined what was going to be in the Bible later is totally false. The Apostle Peter has already said, first of all, we have uh, all of his epistles traveling together. Uh, I have them, the Apostle Peter says. All of the churches have them because now I can talk to you about them. Even Even the opponents of the church have them. They're spread so much all over the Christian world that even the false people have them and are now twisting them. And they had all of them. And the fascinating thing is, uh, we know the writing of 2 Peter. That means all of Paul's epistles they had by 60 AD, which is powerful. And, and, and that is a beautiful argument against the liberal idea that the Bible wasn't even seen as the word of God until later, maybe in the fourth, uh, fourth century. <coughs> All right, so, excuse me. Let's, let me dive in a little bit further. All right, so uh, how many of you want to say what the Apostle Peter said? Then just turn to your neighbor and say, Paul's writings are scripture. All right, even his opponents knew that. And uh, I'll, I'll resist the urge to uh, dive down too deep on that. All right, give me that next slide, Brother Brown. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse, 10, verses 3, 13. I'll resist the urge to do this uh, in detail, but I, I will tell you this. Uh, but God hath revealed unto this, them by his Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes. For the Spirit of God searches all things. He says now, notice what it says. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of God. And then notice what he says in the red there, which things also we speak. Paul is saying the things that I'm giving you in Scripture, are, they come from God. It's in exact alignment with the same type of revelation that we see in the Old Testament. Not in the word, uh, words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. And again, that's the Apostle Paul saying inspiration, it comes from God, uh, and that's what we need to believe as uh, uh, apostolics. Right, give me that next slide, Brother Brown. I, I, and then I'll give you one more just for kicks. First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, the Apostle Paul's writing his son in the gospel. He says, For the Scripture saith that thou shalt not muzzle the ox that uh, treadeth out the corn, and that the labor is worthy of his hire. Now what's beautiful is he not only quotes Deuteronomy, but he goes uh, into Luke chapter 10, and he says Luke's gospel is Scripture. Now again, all due respect to our Catholic friends, our agnostic friends, our skeptical friends that say that the Bible was not even considered to be the word of God until the fourth century. Now, now I'm gonna just be a little pointed here. If you're an apostolic and you're sitting in a cemetery, I mean a seminary somewhere, sorry for the joke. Don't don't embrace a bunch of dead theology. Stay with this life-giving word of God and say what the apostle Paul said. That you ready? They weren't just writing down what they felt and what they thought and what they believed Jesus said and tried to remember. No, he's quoting the gospel of Luke as scripture. And if you're going to do that, now remember that's an early date, uh, at least in the 50s, all due respect to my liberal friends, Brother Herbs, because in the mid-60s when Paul died. So that means the gospel of Luke was already written. It had to be written for uh, the Apostle Paul to quote. And I know I'm giving you some technical details on what liberals will say to uh, tear apart the scripture. But I, I promise we'll get to something good. All right, so, uh, yes, thank you. So, G- oh, oh, just put them up there, Rev, if you'll help me. Just push me. Yeah. Uh, uh, go again. Next slide. All right, so Jesus and Paul hinge their authority on uh, scripture as the final appeal. Uh, look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said unto them, you do err. You do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Uh, For in the resurrection, he's talking about uh, to the Sadducees uh, because they're trying to trap him into saying, lady gets married, her husband dies, marries another guy, that one dies. Whose husband is she going to be in eternity? Ha, ha, ha. See, Jesus, you have to deny the resurrection because the Sadducees were kind of the intellectual elite. They had went to, uh, they had been so steeped in Greek philosophy in the schools of the day, they thought they were so brilliant that they dismissed the teaching of Jesus. Sounds like people today. They get so brilliant with their teaching, their, their study that they think they're smarter than Jesus. And what the apostle said, turn to your neighbor and say, you ain't that smart. <laughs> right? So uh, he says, but as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read? Jesus didn't say, let me give you my philosophical opinion. Now notice what he says. I'm going to go to the only authority there is to make a truth claim. 
That's why you got to know this word of God. The final authority is, in fact, the word of God. Jesus says, have ye, excuse me, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, what is he saying? Now, put that in the Hebrew up there for me. He says, he's quoting an Old Testament Hebrew text that says, I am, you ready? And there's the Hebrew for, or, uh, the, uh, the uh, Hebrew for you. He, he could have said in the, in the Hebrew, I was, but he didn't say I was. He said, I am. Now, what is he saying? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, and God said, I am their God. So there is a resurrection, because when you die, that just means your spirit separates from your body, and Jesus hangs an argument on the tense of a verb. Now that means that you have a word of God that you can trust to the tense of a verb. That's the beauty in which we have to understand the revelation the way that God gave it to us. All right, uh, yeah, give me that next one, Rev. Uh, uh, yes, uh, for what, uh, yeah, Paul, for what saith the scripture? And again, turn to your neighbor, say, scripture's our authority. You, you have no spirituality or no wisdom that's greater than this book. And that's the guide for all of life. All right, just press me, Brother Brom. Thank you. Give me that next slide, yes. Oh, yeah, so Jesus quotes the Old Testament as history, like Adam and Eve. Now, if you don't believe in Adam and Eve, if you think that's all myth, and that's what some people are saying, maybe Genesis, Brother Herbst has already dealt with that, 1 through 11, maybe that's all myth. Uh, you don't believe in Noah and the ark. You don't believe in a worldwide flood. Jesus did. The apostle Peter did. By the way, we are finding all sorts of archaeological evidence. It's like you can go to Egypt. And I remember one of our missionaries coming through, and he was talking about being up there in Egypt, going up in the mountaintops. And guess what they found? Fossilized fish on the top of mountains in Egypt. How'd they get there? We don't know. I do. I have revelation. I'll behave. Hallelujah. So Jesus says he had the Bible in his day. It is written. Every jot and tittle, the slightest marking in the Hebrew, uh, is true history. And if Jesus believed that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, you have to believe that too. Okay, I'll, I'll resist your to get into that. I, I remember I was in, I'll tell oh, one quick story. I was in a seminary, a very liberal seminary I went to that didn't believe uh, the word of God at all, Brother Herbst. And, and, and so uh, I'm just listening to them, to, you know, tear apart the Bible. I don't know what they're going to preach when they go back to their churches on Sunday. But they're, they're going to go preach something. I don't know what they're going to go preach their own ideas. How weak is that? To be limited to the best things that you can come up with. How are you going to bless someone's life? with the best fallen ideas. That's the, total, that's the greatest idolatry, the idolatry of the human mind, that somehow my own ideas are better than this revelation. I'm gonna say it again. Your wisdom and your, and, and your ideas can never be greater than this book. That's why it's in, in, incumbent upon all of us to defend this because it's the basis for all of life. All right, so uh, yes, I'll behave I, I, because, yes, I'll just behave. All right, so let's look at uh, views of inspiration in Eretz. I know we have a question on this on translation, but we'll get to it. We're going to go through the six views of uh, inspiration. The first view is a very, very liberal view. They say it's just natural inspiration. Just like people write poetry, people write God stuff. And you can either accept it or dismiss it. All right, that's called natural inspiration. Right? Uh, second view is uh, called spiritual illumination. It's the same type of liberal view, but only different in kind. It would be like, uh, well, some people write really great songs that I like to sing, uh, but you ready? Their the, the human eyes are inspired the way that people write songs about God today. It can be the same kind of weak, limited uh, understanding. Now, that's not a, a, a good apostolic can't believe those. Why? Because Jesus didn't believe that. Paul didn't believe that, all right? Give me the third one. They would say, well, partial illumination. Now, here's the temptation where due to academic respectability and the pressures of the culture, the apostolic church is in a fight right now. So I'm, I know I'm talking to you about something probably you haven't heard uh, too much about before, but this is the new fight in our day, all right? And so you just have to understand. They would say, well, parts of the Bible, like the spiritual stuff, love, salvation, faith, that's true. But you know, the history, I mean, you got this age of the king stuff. And can you really believe in a worldwide flood and 
I know what Brother Herbst was teaching, but can we really, are you going to believe that the earth is really that young, or can you believe in like, uh, you can't, you're not going to, you're going to dismiss all of the years of science? Now, I know there's a one, uh, there's one library in Paris, France with three and a half miles of shelving of obsolete science books. So I'm just going to tell you, just remember, let every man be a liar and let God be true. And the more we understand, I wish we had time to deal with it in detail, but there's so much evidence for the truth of the Bible. Let me give you a great little book. It's by Josh McDowell called uh, a New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And that's just a book. It's, it's about this thick, and it's filled with all sorts of examples about how you can defend the Bible as the Word of God, archaeological proofs, and uh, more than what we could even explore here today. Or maybe the science wrong. You ready? These non-spiritual matters aren't inspired. So you have a Bible like that. It's got some holes in it, but it's not meant... Here's the code terms. You ready? Well, the Bible's not meant to be a science textbook. That's code for saying, I don't believe the science is true. Jesus said that God, that the New Testament in multiple places says he made them male and female from the beginning. You cannot believe in evolution and be a good Christian because he made them from the beginning, not an amoeba, not something else that evolved into a little monkey finally and then they get to pro-magnum man. And then, you know, you can't believe in evolutionary theory. You can't believe in theistic evolution. God used evolution. Okay, I'll believe that alone. Right, so uh, again, why? Because you have to say what Jesus said. You have to say what the apostles said, that he made them male and female from the beginning. Turn to your neighbor and say, are you apostolic? Okay, good. Man, I wish we had time to deal with Lucy and all the... By the way, uh, there's a great little book, because, you know, why not? I'm going to break the bank. I'm sorry, Sister Brown, if John's buying books online right now. But there's a great little book. And by the way, all of you young people, it's a great little book, especially for you. Uh, it's called The Face That Exposes the Farce of Evolution. It's the best uh, argument against all of these so-called transitional fossils and, and what do you do with dinosaurs. And I'm just, this is terrible. Okay, so here is what intellectual people with PhD says about how birds were created. I'm sorry for this, Pastor. Forgive me. I try to say this without sounding like a snarky smart aleck, but it's really hard. They say that you had these little reptiles, and you know, big T-Rex is chasing them, and they're just running. And they run so much that their scales begin to fray, and it creates feathers. And because they're jumping, it's going to, you know, they, it turns into wings, and that's how you got birds. So what you should say to all of your kids that are running around is, be careful. You could run so fast that all of a sudden little wings are going to start coming on him. <laughs> and they're going to start flying up the branches and you'll never get them back. And so again, what's the problem with that? DNA doesn't change. DNA dictates, so all of this goofy stuff, and by the way, the Bible says fowls were created first, birds were created, and then the creeping things on the earth. Which are you going to believe, Genesis or evolutionary theory? Which are you going to believe, Big Bang cosmology or the Bible? You can't say, well, God spoke, bang, and it happened. No, you can't believe in Big Bang cosmology and accept what Genesis says. Right? It may sound smart, but it's actually detrimental to faith. All right, give me that next one, Brother Brown. Oh, yes, we just got to skip past Peter Inns. Glory to God. <coughs> All right, the, the fourth view is conceptual inspiration. Now, this is another liberal accommodation uh, that, that is saying, well, maybe God inspired the concepts, but he left the details to the authors. Now, we just read what the Bible says that Every word of God is inspired. They were carried, uh, Theonoustos, they were carried along by the Spirit. Jesus said, well, we'll let Jesus say it in a moment. Uh, does God inspire words or concepts? Man shall not live by bread alone, but every concept that Paul, no, no. Man shall not live by, by bread alone, but every word. That means every single word has to be inspired. Okay, uh, and, and so we have to say, they would say, well, maybe there's just one hole or just some little holes in there, but come through the human element. And then you get the fifth view, and this is the biblical view. What we call verbal inspiration, what my wonderful professor, feminist professor said, divine penmanship. It's like, make fun of me, I don't care. 
Jesus is on my side. I hate to keep repeating that, but I just feel really comfortable up here with the apostles, you know. <laughs> I, I have to choose between you and Jesus. It's not hard, you know. And so, uh, so that God inspired the authors with each word, superintending even the details. Now, that's the view of Jesus and Paul and the rest of the apostles. Give me that next one, John. And we'll, we'll just do this one very quickly. Divine dictation. And that's, uh, that's, there are parts of the Bible where it says, thus saith the Lord. And they dictated what God said. But the uh, uh, Muslim believers say that that's the entire Quran, that God dictated every single word. And that's why they would say that their, their scripture is um, superior to ours, Brother Herbst. The problem with that is, uh, what do you do with all the places where the science is wrong, where it embraces the flat earth theory? It gets history wrong. Uh, it's terrible. It gets a science wrong. And so that's why we can't have scientific errors in here. Because if there are scientific errors here, now I'm going to be a little pointed. And if there are historical errors in here, Brother Cox, and, and maybe they're the age of the king is wrong. If this has historical errors and scientific errors, then what makes this different than the Quran? That's why we have to believe in the doctrine of inerrancy and, and verbal, in, uh, verbal inspiration that every single word, every detail uh, is the word of God. Uh, push me, Brother Brown. All right, yeah, so here's, here's a great little uh, uh, argument. Like people say well, Christianity believed in the Bible and then ultimately they said the Bible is not infallible anymore. Now you could put there not inerrant. It's got, er it's got there's errors in it uh, um, and they reduce the language. This is what we're, what's happening in our day. They're saying we, don't, we no longer believe in the inerrant word of God. We believe in the infallible word of God. Now, infallible used to mean the same thing as inerrancy, that it will never fail. But right now, that's become a theological term of reduction because you're saying, well, there may be some errors in it, but it will never fail to accomplish salvation. Now, that's not what the apostles said. That's not what Jesus said. Scripture cannot be broken. There are no errors in the Bible. And if you have an error in your Bible, I suggest you get one that doesn't have an error. I'll behave. Hallelujah. All right, so, uh, and, and they would say, no, the Bible is not infallible. Man, and, you know, man's not made in God's image then. There are no miracles. Maybe we can keep the morals of the Bible. Well, then there's no virgin birth. There's no deity of Christ. There's no atonement. There's no resurrection then. And you get into agnosticism and ultimately atheism. atheism. This is the descent of modernist liberal theology. And this is what they would say. Uh, give me that next little. Uh, uh, the, the fundamentalist uh, versus the modernist controversy is something. Uh, give me that next little animation. That's new. This is something. And this is what liberals will say, Brother uh, John. You're arguing for something that's new. Christians never argued for this. This came around in the 1800s when you started fighting liberal theology, having to say all this inspiration stuff. Well, let me give you a, a, a liberal quote here. That's because it's not new. All right, give me that next slide. Chris Blake is considered by uh, many people to be the leading kind of uh, cutting edge. Uh, he taught at uh, Harvard. Uh, uh, he was considered to be the expert uh, liberal of his day. Now, I'm quoting him because he's going to tell, he smacks them around. I don't have to smack them around. It's fun when I can get somebody on their own team to smack them around. Hallelujah. It's like, uh, you ever play basketball with somebody? You walk up and high five one of the opponents, hey, you're the best player on our team because they keep fumbling the ball or something. All right, that's kind of what Chris Blake says. He says, it is a mistake often made by who? Educated persons who happen to have little knowledge of historical theology. Now, I just want to point that out. If you're going to get education, drink deeply at that well so that you can see the end of that belief. Before you embrace the front edge of liberal ideas, walk it to its conclusion of disbelief. Right? And what does that mean? Little knowledge of historical theology to suppose that fundamentalism, turn to your neighbor and say, they mean you, is a new and strange form of thought. He says it's not new and strange. It is nothing of the kind. It is the partial and uneducated. That's okay, call me names. That's what they said of the apostles. They're ignorant and unlearned fishermen. But they had a pretty good teacher. Uh, he was a rabbi. His name was Jesus. You can call me names, I don't care. Uneducated survival of a theology, which was what? Once universally held by all Christians. Oh, so what you're saying is you left the Bible. Then you go ahead and go. I'm going to stay right there with Jesus and the apostles. Give me that next slide. He says, how many were there, for instance, in the Christian churches in the 18th century who doubted the infallible inspiration of all Scripture? 
A few perhaps, but very few. No, the fundamentalist may be wrong, and I think he is. That's fine. You can think I'm wrong. I'm going to side with Jesus. But it is we who have departed from the tradition. You ready? Not he, and I am sorry for the fate of anyone who tries to argue with the fundamentalists, you crazy people that believe the Bible, on the basis of authority. The Bible and the corpus theologicum, the entire corpus of the history of theology of the church is on the who side? The fundamentalists. That's why I get nervous when people say to me, John, well, we're no longer, we're not a fundamentalist organization. We're not a fundamentalist. Well, which part of the fundamentals don't you agree with? Oh, the preservation of the text. I ain't going with you. I'm going to stay right up here with Jesus and the apostles. You can call me fundy. You can call me anything you want to. I'm not intimidated. Why? Because I got Jesus and the apostles on my side. All right, so let's, uh, let's jump a little bit. Uh, give me that next slide. So there it is. When I have to choose between the Bible and Chris at Blake, all due respect, I'm going to stay right there for scripture. Hallelujah. All right, give me that next one. All right, so let me give you the three views of inerrancy, and I'll try to hurry. Help me, Jesus. How, many, how long have I been going? Okay, i got to hurry. Okay, uh, so when you look at inspiration, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of God. All right, when we talk about inerrancy then, there is a natural outgrowth off your view of inspiration. Because what good would it do for God to inspire his word and somehow inspire it with errors? God can do a perfect work. And so we believe in absolute inerrancy. And that means all matters, spiritual, historical, and scientific, are true. As a matter of fact, uh, the NASA scientist, uh, uh, oh, his name will come to me. Uh, he said, he said uh, something like this, Brother Brom. He said, you know, for the, the atheist who puts his faith in his reason, modern history reads like a horror story. Because we're climbing the, the rocks of ignorance. We get to the top of the mountain of knowledge. And when we get there, what do we find, Brother Herbs? He says, but a band of theologians who've been there for centuries. Now, what is he saying, this NASA atheist scientist? Yeah, Darwin was wrong. They're not even teaching Darwinian evolution at the PhD level anymore. They're still teaching in high school because they have nothing left to replace it with except for what they don't want to acknowledge. An intelligent design is winning the day. And uh, uh, give me that next one. So people would say, well, maybe, maybe, Brother Kilman, we can make an accommodation. We can believe in full inerrancy. That the Bible's true, but its primary aim is not to make scientific or historical claims. If it's not true in history, how can I trust what it says about salvation? All right, uh, give me that next one. And then the third one is much more honest in my opinion, I like honest liberals. I can have a real conversation. I say, I believe in limited inerrancy. I, I believe that there's a, a limited amount of truth in there. And you ready? Oh, it's only true in theological and spiritual matters. Now, I, I appreciate their honesty, but I'm going to side with Jesus. Now, what do they mean? Yeah, give me that next slide, Rev. They would say, well, you have to understand when you start talking about inerrancy and inspiration is they were men of their times. They were people of their times. Now, what do they mean by that? Uh, kind of like the seven, I, I, I don't understand uh, how Allah, all-knowing God named Allah, could believe in the flat earth theory, right? But I can understand how a 7th century guy like Muhammad could mistakenly talk about the flat earth theory. How many of you say that's understandable? It was the worldview of the time. It was prevailing kind of in his culture. So in about six or seven places, uh, uh, Muhammad writes from God about the flat earth theory. Okay, now I understand how he could get that wrong, but I don't understand how someone who's writing by the inspiration of an all-knowing God to the slightest marking of the text could get that wrong. That's why the Old Testament says God sits on the circle of the earth. That Hebrew word is sphere. How did they know the earth was round? Because holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God directed them to write science beyond their knowledge. Wish we had time to deal with that in detail. You, again, read McDowell and you'll see so many proofs of, of, of how God uh, described. Uh, I wish we had time to talk about where in Job where it says he hangs the earth on an empty space. And when you go above the North Poles in terms of the uh, stars, there's a vast expanse of a gap of the stars right above the North Pole. Why? Because God knew what he was doing when he moved Job to write that verse. And we're just finding out some of this stuff uh, uh, late now in history. So if they're limited scientifically, they would say, well, that's historical errors uh, and, and scientific errors, Brother Herbs, but they were men of their times. That's just allowable. They were limited. 
They got the God stuff right, but they were just writing from their own perspective. Well, if they're limited historically, there may be a historical oracle, but that's understandable because they didn't believe in the types of history that we have today. They didn't, when you say history, you're worried about being exactly correct. They didn't believe that. Okay, if you're reading that, I don't care if it's an apostolic author. Don't put this on Brother Cox. Where's the or Am I being recorded somewhere? Okay, th- oh, right here. Where? Right there, okay. K-I-L-L-M-O-N, not Brother Cox. K-I-L-L-M-O-N. If if you're reading somebody and they say, well, they didn't have recording devices, so you can't expect the apostles and and the New Testament writers, the Old Testament writers, to do the type of history we uh, do today. That's stupid. Stupid. I'm trying to be nice to you. I love you. But you, you ready? That's just wrong. Why? Because again, you got to say what Jesus and the apostles did, that the word scripture cannot be broken by scientific and historical errors. Because if it can be broken there, why couldn't it be broken in spiritual matters? All right, and I'll prove it to you. So if they're limited scientifically and they're limited historically, why wouldn't they be limited uh, or historically and scientifically, Brother Brom? Why wouldn't they be limited uh, morally? As a matter of fact, give me that next little slide. That's what's being argued today by liberal theologians, Brother Herbst. They say, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that there's this universal covering that a woman needs in worship. And it's true in all times and places. He ties it to creation, uh, uh, the separation of the sexes. He talks about angels, all of these eternal things. He doesn't mention culture once. It has nothing to do with Corinthian culture. Has to do with creative order, spiritual authority, and alignment, and, uh, and the separation of the sexes from the beginning. And so, this liberal evangelical says Paul was just wrong to think that a woman walking in church has to have a covering on her head in a certain way. Now he says he says to the guy who's trying to argue for another view of limited inspiration, brother Herbs. He says, "Now, do you have your women? Do they have to come in with coverings on their head?" And we know what that. I mean, the Bible's very clear. Her hair is given to her for a covering. That's why we say what we do about hair and things like that. And so he says, "Do you require that of your churches today?" And and, and you ready? The guy says, "Well, no, I don't." He said, so Paul was limited on that moral issue, wasn't he? And if he was limited on that hair issue, why wouldn't he be limited on that homosexuality issue in Romans 126? Because he could never, because Paul was so limited morally, he could never believe that there would be two same-sex people that would be a same-sex couple that would be committed to each other for the rest of their life. He just didn't have that in view. He was limited. Now, where are you going to stop tearing apart your Bible? If you believe in limited history or limited science, you're going to end up right here in limited morality. I don't know about you, but I know what the Lord has done to change my life, to make me the person that I should be. And I'm going to say it again. It's not in a, it's not in a man that walks to direct his steps. That's what the Bible says. You need somebody higher than you to guide you through this life. How many of you are glad that you can have wisdom beyond your mere knowledge? I can have direction for my life, uh, get me into peace and joy and blessing beyond what I can come up with on my own. Give me that next slide, Reverend. We'll we'll wrap up. I'll give you one example from history. Uh, There's a great little book by uh, by Hemer, and he talks about uh, the book of Acts. And so Hemer uh, says this. He goes... Uh, uh, when you look at the specifics of the book of Acts, and again, this is people who think uh, brother, uh, the Acts, Brother John, is uh, limited historically, that they weren't describing true history. I'm just going to give you uh, a non-apostolic uh, liberal expert, okay? So uh, Hemer says this. When you look at these historians like Cauda, he says, for instance, is, uh, or the place, rather, Cauda is precisely where a ship was driven, because he's talking about uh, this uh, particular event in the book of Acts where Paul was shipwrecked. How many know about that story? So Paul's shipwrecked. Uh, he says, everybody stay in the boat. He gets that supernatural revelation from God, that word of uh, wisdom. If we stay in the boat, everybody's going to be preserved. Well, this is what happens. He says, call to the place where they're shipwrecked is precisely where a ship being driven helpless before an east-northeast wind. Now, why east-northeast wind? Because that's exactly what the Greek word means in the New Testament. It describes the exact type of storm that happens there uh, at Cauda. He says, from beyond the shelter, excuse me, of uh, Cape 
Matala. He says, might gain brief uh, respite for the necessary maneuvers and to set a more northward line of draft for the starboard tack. He says, here's the crazy thing about the details of uh, of Luke. He says, uh, he knows exactly where the storm's going to come in. He knows precisely the place where we can see that today, that same type of storm, Brother Herbst, today, and exactly where you would have to, the way ship, old ancient Near Eastern sh- shipmen would handle that type of storm. He says he gets all those details right. All right, give me that next slide. Uh, so he says, Luke fares much better than the encyclopedist Pliny. Now notice what he's saying. That the greatest expert of Hellenized history, of Greek history, you ready? The Bible fares better than the best of Greek historians. You can trust the history of the Bible. Okay, so he says, uh, who might be regarded as the foremost first century example example of such a source. Pliny places Cauda, or Gaudos, opposite Hierapitha, uh, uh, some 90 miles too far east. So you ready? The greatest expert in Greek history gets it 90 miles off. Why? They don't have GPS. All right? So he says, even Potomi, who offers a reckoning of a latitude and longitude, makes a serious dislocation to the northwest, putting Cauda to uh, near the western end of Crete. So even the second best guy, Potomi, gets it wrong. All right? Give me that next slide, Rev. Now, what, what is he saying? Luke... Gets the details right, John, why? He says, because he was on the boat. He was with Paul, the wee passages of Luke, which vindicates, you ready, that he was on the boat and experienced it. We're talking about literal history being recorded accurately that we can just test today. And so the apostolic view of inerrancy is uh, every one of those scriptures are, are given by inspiration of God. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now let me give you one last verse here. Matthew five eighteen. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, Jesus says, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now what, is, what does jot and tittle mean? Give me that next slide. All right, now this is, this is the word, uh, the name of God in the Hebrew Old Testament, yod heh vav heh. And you can see right here, yod heh, yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So when Jesus says, well, not jot, give me that next little animation, that's what he's referring to. It's, uh, it's a third to half the size of every other Hebrew consonant in the Bible. Jesus is saying, not one jot, or give me that next slide, or one tittle. Now, what's a tittle? Uh, give me that next anima- two animations. It's the difference between a bath and a cough in the Hebrew. It's that little bitty appendage right there, or the difference between a resh and a dalit. You ready? It's just that little marking. Jesus is saying the slightest marking of the Hebrew Old Testament is the accurate preserved word of God. And now historians and science and everything is catching up with what our Lord said. How many of you are glad you've just been siding with Jesus a long time? And it's a great day to be an apostolic to understand that we have a preserved word to us. What good would it be to have inspiration without inerrancy? And what good would it have would be for God to inspire an inerrant text without preserving it down to our day so that we can say we have the very same thing uh, today? All right, uh, give me that last slide. So I'll give you an example. Now, this is the difference between a chet and a hey. It's that little mark. So Jesus is saying that little tittle. I'll show you how important that is. Give me that next little slide. Uh, So the difference between Hallel and Hallel can be shown in Leviticus 18. Now that's just that little connector, right? Because uh, Leviticus 18, 21 says, neither shalt thou profane the name of of thy God, I am the Lord. Now, if you change it to Hallel, it would, instead of Hallel, it would be neither shalt thou praise the name of thy God. And it's just that slight marking of the pen that would change it. Did you know that the Jewish people uh, throughout history would rather die than change one letter of the Hebrew Old Testament? Why? Because they believed it was the very word of God. You know, there have been people that have died to give us what we have today in our hands, this beautiful English translation. Why? Because they said this is the very word of God. I think as apostolics, if they were willing to die for it, 
We can just go ahead and say, I can be called an idiot in some classroom somewhere, and I don't care. Amen? Amen. Oh, yes, I think we'll, we'll wrap up there today. So much else I wanted to do, but we'll stop there today. I hope, I hope you understood what I was saying. How many of you got a little bit of what I'm saying? Amen. Amen. I'll let whoever's going to moderate, John. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you and we hope you have a great week. Thank you.